thank you very much for choosing this British Journal of Sports and Medicine podcast. My name is Sean Carmody uh, and I'm a doctor based in the UK. Today I'm delighted to welcome uh, Nick Winkleman onto the podcast. Nick is the Head of Athletic Performance and Science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Um, before working for Irish Rugby, Nick was the Director of Education and Training Systems uh, for Exos um, in, in Arizona in the US. Nick, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, Sean, my pleasure. Nick, so if it's okay with you, I, I want to kind of talk mainly today about uh, some of the content which is in your in your book, which you've re- released on on the language of coaching and the art of science and science of teaching movement. Um, can you just tell us a bit about the premise of that book, what inspired it, and and why you feel it's important? Yeah, no, for sure. Maybe I'll start with the premise, and and to put it simply, the book is about how do coaches, or what I should say broadly, movement professionals. And so it doesn't matter if you're a physio, strength coach, sport coach, I'm considering you a movement professional because you coach and, and, and evolve and upgrade movement. And so it's a matter of how do we get movement professionals to connect through their language better with those that they serve, clients, patients, athletes, and in doing so, help upgrade the way their athletes, let's say, think or focus to improve the way they move. So practitioner to athlete, athlete to movement, and understanding that as practitioners, we use language, cues, instruction, and feedback. It dominates the way that we interact. And while it's not the only way, it is a central way to share information. And so this book is about how do we optimize what we say to optimize how they move. And if you look at the where the inspiration for the book came from, there's a, a couple different sparks. But the notable one is, I think, a familiar scenario. And that is, I was working with players who were transitioning out of college into the NFL via the NFL Combine. So these were American football players. And I had the experience where during the eight-week preparation process, my players would run faster over 40 yards, if you would, jump higher for vertical and broad jump. They just generally performed better, both in outcome and coordination, so technique than when they actually got to Indianapolis at the physical NFL combine. And how often have we had that? Whether you're a clinician and someone comes in with you on a Monday and you make some improvement, but then they come back in next Monday and it's like one step forward, one step back. Or the sport coach that sees the player that oftentimes is called the practice player that seems to improve during the week, but can't quite cut it on the weekend. And so when you start to drill down into this you realize that so much of it can be explained by the coach, the movement professional, as a teacher, as a facilitator. And when you start to look at yourself as a variable, you realize there's tremendous science and practice that can be upgraded in how you communicate and interact, which has a direct impact on learning, which is what sticks with the player or the athlete when you're not with them, so that they come back the following Monday better without the need to remind them, that they come back on the competition day and perform at the level that they achieved during the week without you having to remind them. So much of that goodness, that transfer, comes in how we coach. And on a practical level, Nick, can you give some examples, you know, about how you might go about that or how you got more out of those high school athletes going to the combine? The combine in particular, when it comes to language, and this is true of teaching anyone, there are two key areas that directly impact, let's say, the transferability 
of your coaching. How much you say and what you say. And specifically what we're talking about here, Sean, is right before someone moves. And so in the book, we define this as your cues. The cue is the, the last thing that you say right before they move with the idea that what you're saying is going to guide their focus, their intention. And so the first thing that we know that makes a big difference on immediate and future performance is the quantity of information. We know attention is a limited capacity resource. Working memory is a limited capacity resource. And so in my own studies and application, I had to be able to get my language down to the one big thing, the one major cue. From there then, we start to understand that, okay, what that cue is, the actual language you use in that cue has a massive impact, not only on the short-term performance immediately after the cue is spoken, but also on the long-term learning. And typically, we describe these variants of cueing on a continuum of internal to external, where internal language is where if we're talking about, let's say, sprinting, you might say something like hip extension or squeeze your glute. So it's language oriented to a single joint or single muscle. Whereas on the external side, it says, okay, we're not going to talk about the body. We're going to talk about the outcomes the body is trying to achieve. And so there it might be push the ground away, explode off the line, get long off the line like a jet taking off, explode out and up like you're sprinting up a hill. And in all these cases, I'm using outcome-oriented language that either directly relates to the physical environment they're in, or I create some virtual environment in their mind by way of analogy or metaphor. And so normally when you ask coaches and practitioners, you know, is one better than the other? Do they both have a place? And people interrogate their own coaching. They'll say, well, we'll both have a place and it depends on when we use them. And I had the same intuition, Sean, when I started to look at this. But ultimately now I've been applying these principles for over a decade. And I've been studying them academically through my PhD work just as long. And what we now know is since the first real spark study in 98, there's over 170 papers on this that have evaluated internal cueing versus external cueing, which is to say internal focus versus external focus. And we now know in well over 96% of those studies, external cues are more often than not going to be productive or help the athlete or client or patient perform better in the now, but more importantly, external language seems to allow for better learning long-term, which means they retain, the, the patient retains the changes without the need to remind them of the cue. And it just seem, simply seems that external cues do that better than internal. And when we start to look at the mechanisms behind that, which we can get into, it makes a whole lot of sense. And that from a motor control perspective, our motor system controls itself in terms of outcomes, which are established by our intentions. And so if I'm trying to perform a multi-joint movement, but I am hyper-intentional around one joint or one muscle, I, by the very nature, constrain the body motion because I'm creating this competing resource of, well, I'm trying to sprint and I'm trying to extend my hip. While they're related, the brain processes those as two different goals. And so external cues and through the nuance of language, establish one goal, allowing the body to self-organize to achieve it. For the people that are thinking, well, hold on, what if I want to cue a very minute change? Well, we don't have the time to probably get into that, but it's in the nuance of then how you use language and what I call the anatomy of a cue. 
that changes how the movement is emphasized to achieve a goal, making those micro changes in technique that many coaches and movement professionals desire. Great stuff, Mick. Um, I, I listened to uh, a podcast with Michael Lewis there uh, a couple of weeks ago um, with the, you know, the author of Moneyball, The Big Short. Uh, and he, in, during that podcast, he, he spoke about a high school coach of his, Billy Fitzgerald, who had a hugely positive influence on him um, because of how he communicated. What are the components of great communication that may help those uh, cues to stick, in, in your opinion? So, my canned statement is this you want your cues to be short phrases that put a picture in the athlete's mind that helps them understand the outcome they're trying to achieve. Simply put, for me, that is the, the heartbeat of effective language. The way you increase the stickiness value of that is I would say, well, there's a number of variables. I'll talk about two of them. The first one is the more visual the language is, the easier it is for us to process. There's a reason we say a picture is worth a thousand words but we definitely don't want people using a thousand words to articulate a picture. And so if I can use language like analogies, explode off the line like a jet taking off, drive your knee forward as if to break through a pane of glass, you know, explode off the ground like a rocket to the sky, so on and so forth. If I can start to use visual language that is embedded in the outcomes the movement is trying to achieve, it's just far easier for the person to process and remember it. But equally, I need to use language, and this is where oftentimes coaches or professionals go wrong, that is familiar to the person. So if I'm working with someone from the country on sprinting, and they've never been on an airplane in their life, and I tell them to explode off the line like a jet taking off, even though that cue might work really well for you and I, it's probably not going to work for them. And so are we seeking, as I say, to understand the client, the patient, the athlete's language locker? Are we using their familiar? their words, their phrases, their insights, their experiences to teach them the unfamiliar. And so once I understand about my athlete's language locker, I can use that information in the way I synthesize these analogies, these pictures, these external cues. And just to illustrate this point to the listeners, let's go back to the sprinting example. I want you to imagine you're on the line, you're up against Usain Bolt, and I'm going to give you one of three cues to think about while the gun goes off in the 100-meter dash. One is extend your hips. The second one is push the blocks away. Or the third one is I've just put a venomous snake one foot behind your back ankle that is about to strike you and I need you to beat the bite. If you just download the emotions of those three cues and the one that is going to promote the effort and the biomechanics of extension and power and getting off the line, I don't think you require me to tell you which one is the most potent. And so imagine if you could capture that potency, that feeling in every cue you use. That's what the language of coaching teaches people how to do. Really great stuff, Nick. And I know you've worked with a great coach, uh, Joe Schmidt, who, who really buys into this use of visual language and, and talks about um, flopping around the, the floor like a salmon uh, for rugby players and that when they're, when they're on the floor with the ball. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Thinking about the listeners for this podcast too, the majority of will might be physiotherapists or doctors or sports scientists um, working with athletes. How, how might this emphasis on language, which you know, you're, you're discussing in, in terms of coaching, be translated to clinical practice? The, the beauty is this, Sean. Movement is movement is movement. I say it in the very first pages of my book. 
you could insert physio, doctor, parent, sport coach for the word strength coach. And so the principles all the way through are one-to-one. And the examples, albeit maybe not detailed clinical examples, they span sport, strength, conditioning, personal training, as well as rehabilitation. And so it is not going to take the, the, the listener or the reader really any significant effort to translate this into their world because we're talking in the common currency of all these domains, and that is movement. And even in the 27 movements that I have in the back of the book that, let's say, apply these principles, these are basic movements with which every clinician is trying to get their athlete or their patients back to, right? From squatting, two-leg, single-leg split to running, so on and so forth. And ultimately, it do, the, the principles do not change if someone is injured. If anything, these principles become far more important and we're subject to see a greater impact when we're talking about an injured community. Notably, and we probably don't have the time to get into this, because injuries cause a self-invoked internal cue. How often is the person that blew their ACL touching their knee well after the time that they've rehabilitated or grabbing their hamstring after they've done the hamstring, even though it was six months ago? We see them doing the little checks. And so we know that already internal focus is something that people start to default to at an individual level. We also know that many in the medical and SNC profession currently have a bias towards internal language, which arguably further pulls people into that mindset. Yet we have a mountain of evidence that suggests that external focus promotes better performance in the immediate, better learning long-term, and likely will have protective effects against choking under pressure, which arguably, we haven't made the direct connection yet, could relate to re-injury, and hopefully more of that research will be done. And so if there ever was a community where it was important to get language as we rehabilitate the body right, it is in the medical community so that we rehabilitate the mind alongside, because they are one and the same in terms of how movements is performed. That's really great, Nick. Um, and, and I guess you touched on some long-term injuries there, like ACL, for athletes who are at the beginning of their, their rehab journey, the rehab can feel very detached from their sport. They may you know, no longer feel like an athlete, and, and that can be particularly deflating. How can we use language during the early part of the process to increase motivation, to get more from the rehab? And, and to yeah. It's a beautiful, yeah, Sean, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, I, I talk about this in the tail end of the book, and that is early on, it just seems like I've written a book that's okay, here's how we use language to improve movement. But ultimately what you come to find is the, the language that is going to help you improve, Sean, is different than the language that is going to help me improve. And even though we both might need to rehabilitate our knee, the actual ideas and thoughts and pictures that we need in our respective minds to achieve that are going to be very different. You know, you're moving into a football role. I have something in rugby. So again, even from a sporting context. And so ultimately what happens is this. If I seek to understand your goals, who you are as a person, what wakes you up in the morning, what keeps you up at night, your stories, your language, your phrases, your experiences, because I had gone through a process of getting to know you, but most importantly, listening to you. I can start to mirror and use your language, your experiences in how I cue you. And I'm just going to give one story here to cap this off. And that is, I was working as a personal trainer and I was doing the initial intake. 
And I asked the gentleman who I was working with, what is your goal? He explained to me that he is separated from his wife, that he, his son, he has a son with his wife and he lives with her and that he is the most important thing in his life. And he said, you have to understand that there is a poster on my son's wall of Superman and that Superman is the most important thing. He, he, my son looks up to Superman. And for me, I want to be my son, Superman. And so it's so interesting, but I think everyone can relate to that idea that oftentimes the why behind the what, the deeper meaning of what we're chasing is so much more than kicking a ball or throwing a ball. Usually there's something behind that. And so for him, he, he came out with it. And so I was a young coach, probably couldn't fully appreciate it, but I knew there was something important there, Sean. Fast forward or a few sessions in, he's doing an RDL and his body is rounded. He can't keep that kind of teeter-totter position on that lower leg. It's a single leg RDL. And so I, he gets done. I said, listen, I want you to imagine your body position at the bottom of this movement is like Superman coming off the building, strong and long, catching Lois Lane. Show me that Superman position at the bottom. He gets done and he stands up with a tear in his eye and he says, thank you to me. I think what it comes down to is what I've realized in studying how language impacts people, we have to remember that second part. We're trying to impact people. So in understanding the person I'm trying to impact, I can use their experiences, their why, what drives them, and use their language, not mine, and then simply use it to teach them the body positions, the movements. And what they end up feeling is this, that not only is learning feeling easier, they're getting better at the movement, but they now know you've listened to them. You're connecting with them in the process of connecting them to their movement. And so that for me is, is the central thesis of what this can do when done correctly. I think that's a really useful anecdote, uh, and Nick, and, and uh, athletes having a sense of purpose. You know, we, we often see that that helps to, to, to drive excellent outcomes and, and above and beyond, um, just as you said, just kicking a ball. Uh, Nick, I think that's a, a really great place to finish. Thank you very much for um, coming on the podcast today. Um, certainly what we'll do is we'll, if, if listeners want to read more about Nick's work and, and the importance of language in terms of coaching and, and how that can be applied to medical practice, we'll, we'll um, add some links um, to the podcast below. So thank you very much, Nick, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much.